Uh, Lord, this is a, a, a difficult text, uh, confrontational. And by the Holy Spirit, would you give us uh, an appetite for it? Uh, I pray that you would recenter each of us around you, that you would open our eyes to see you with clarity and, and also open our eyes uh, to see ourselves with clarity as well, uncover things that maybe we have become blind to. Uh, but God, by your mercy, show us over and over again and again just the love and grace of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray these things, amen. We have in our text this morning a, a confrontation and a clash between the religious leadership of the day who had really been most known for their strict lifestyles of trying to keep themselves holy unto the Lord. We have a clash between the most religious people of the day and the Son of God himself in what is perhaps one of the most awkward dinners in human history. Jesus gets invited into a Pharisee's house as a guest to share a meal, and then Jesus proclaims woes upon his host and the rest of the other people there. This is a kind of meal where you don't know whether you should just keep on eating or to stop and stare. Uh, you might not even know where to look. And the woes Jesus pronounces and the approach that Jesus takes with the religious is quite a bit different than that of the tax collector or the more notable sinner, whom he beckons to simply come and follow him. Because there's something different about being a religious person and yet still being far from God that is more dangerous and more damning than those who are in more obvious sin. For it is that many can honor God with their lips and yet still have their hearts far from them and therefore not feel uh, their perilous position because those lips and those external actions can so easily give a great deal of comfort and a sense of spiritual safety which Jesus seeks to remove within the interaction of this passage. You know, we can so often think that the greatest danger to our spiritual health is the changing culture outside of us. Secularism and uh, the dominating naturalistic atheistic worldview which can express itself in the things that we're seeing today. Others of us can sometimes think that the greatest danger to our spiritual well-being is, is government overreach in the area of worship. I know for a few of us here, that's an even bigger deal. And we can go down the list at what we may think is most harmful and what can cause our faith to falter as forces which are really all outside of us. But actually, many times it is that there are more deadly patterns within the religious sphere and a more pressing danger of, of hollow religion hypocrisy, uh, arrogance, pride, self-centeredness, self-righteousness, a lack of love, a lack of an awareness of our own sinfulness, a lack of repentance. The most serious dangers to the faith might come from those within who do know the truth and are religiously active and are morally conservative, and yet their hearts are alienated from God himself. And it is that the most woeful people in our text this morning are really those who do exist in every era and every age, whose spirituality and worship, which may have began with the best of intentions, has become a shell merely for self-worship. I think that confrontations and conflicts like these are recorded for us because we're not uh, invulnerable to these same temptations. It's easy to get caught up in external religiosity and still be deadened within, and then somehow uh, want a reputation for godliness more than we do actual godliness. And so these texts deal with these very issues. But I want you to notice first how Jesus does go into the home of a Pharisee who really, they are not the biggest fans of Jesus. He still accepts the invitation to come over. Verse 37, and we read there. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. 
Uh, before we get to the meat of this passage, I want you to notice Jesus' willingness to dine with one who is part of a group of people who are utterly not on the same page with Jesus at best and who are murderously antagonistic to Jesus at worst. Jesus is still ever ready to spend time with these who are not believers, and as Jesus' people, we ought to do the same. We often only hang out with people that we feel safe with, comfortable with, share the same worldviews and political stances and belief systems with. And I think it's important to note here that Jesus did not do that. Jesus did spend time with prostitutes and tax collectors, and I don't think he'd been comfortable or approving of their lifestyle choices. You think the Holy Son of God all of a sudden became numb to abject sin? No. You think the Christ doesn't care about holiness? He absolutely does. He hates sin. But in spending time with sinful people, there was always purpose in it, for Jesus wanted to call them out of their lifestyles and into new life. And so Jesus frequently spends time with those who are far from God, even when it may have been uncomfortable to do just that. And here it is that we see the similar readiness to spend time with those who are far from God, except this time it's not those who are guilty of obvious sinfulness, but the most religious people in town who are just as far from God, if not further, than the people that they disapprove of. But if someone wants to spend time with Jesus, to know more about him, to talk with him, he makes the time to do just that. I think for some of us in this room, we can be so uh, protective of ourselves, so protective of our families that we just feel unsafe to spend too much time in a real and intimate way with people who do not hold fast to the truth. And there is, granted, some safety in that, but this is not what Jesus did in his life on earth. He took the time to mix with unbelievers the ungodly, the sinful ones, to visit them at their homes, to speak to them about the kingdom of God, to understand their lives in a very real way. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be salt and light, to season and to brighten, and it doesn't make any kind of sense to hide out in a country club of sorts trying to ride out safely until Jesus returns, to seal ourselves off from the rest of the world. Otherwise, what's the purpose of continuing in this life? Might as well just go to heaven now. But there's a commission, a great commission, that Jesus sends his followers on that we might disciple the nations. And discipling the nations necessarily means that we spend time with those who do not know Jesus Christ. That may mean more uncomfortable time with neighbors and friends and unbelieving family members, even if that is not how you are naturally inclined. I think we should often take inventory of who it is that we spend our time with week to week. And if it's only believer, 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 and no one else all day every day. Then we have to branch out, church family. Now, for others of us here, and I think there are some here who actually feel more at home and more comfortable and more safe and feel more connection with unbelievers than they do the church family. And I think it would be appropriate to take inventory of those relationships as well. Perhaps it is that you do feel more comfortable with unbelievers because you actually do have a lot more in common with them than you do the family of God. That what they live for and what they strive for, what they cheer for and spend their time doing how they raise their children, what satisfies them and gives to them joy is strangely the same exact things that do you. When our commonality over this sports team we watch or pickleball we play, raising athletes or future geniuses or whatever it is that brings glory and attention to our own selves, when our commonality over these worldly things is stronger than our commonality with the family of faith, even with our vast array of differences, I think we have to contemplate why that is. 
And I would encourage you to take a step back and see if perhaps this comfort is because you are actually living more like an unbeliever than salt and light in the first place. That's just simply called worldliness. And so take inventory of your relationships with those outside the family of God and ask yourself if they have had more of an influence upon you than you have had upon them. If bringing Jesus to them is even your hope and goal anymore, or if you just quietly live a lot like them, camouflaged within and enjoying that company as is. If that is the case, maybe you do have to withdraw a little bit to get your bearings back. And so Jesus, he does take great effort, even as a holy son of God, to spend time with those who do not know God, but not merely for enjoyment's sake, but for purpose. He was the same at the pulpit, so to speak, as he was in homes and at dinner tables. And we see this same boldness as we get into the meat of our text now, as Jesus faithfully is calling out and rebuking sinful religious living. Verse 38, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Here, Jesus is calling out and pointing out the absurdity of an externals-only kind of religion, the kind of spiritual people who on the outside seem like they're so holy, and yet the sin within doesn't seem to bother them at all. God wants our hearts, brothers and sisters. He wants your heart, not just lip service and going through the motions. But the Pharisees over the years, their religion had become entirely absurd. And Jesus at dinner uses even the plates and the cups in front of him as an object lesson. Can you imagine if you only wash the outside of the cup and the outside of the dish? I mean, think about it. Spaghetti night, dishes, sauce marks everywhere. And you go to the sink and you flip that plate over and only scrub the bottom of it and then right into the drying rack. Beef curry, how crusty that can get. Ever drink Airborne or mix a protein shake or have four kids' milk glasses and you just rinse the outside, leave the inside alone? What would those things look like over time? It's disgusting. It's crusty. It's nasty. It's utterly absurd. And this is Jesus' argument that the Lord has made the outside, yes, but the Lord created the inside of you as well, the seat of our affections, emotions, motivations, ambitions. Do you think that God is only satisfied with religious paint on a heart that is far away from him? Of course, the answer is no. To think otherwise is insane. Now, at this point, and 2,000 years later, it's easy to throw stones at the Pharisees and, and to distance ourselves from them as idiots and imbeciles who just couldn't put it quite together. Hindsight is 2020, but I, I think it's helpful to realize exactly what a Pharisee was in the first century and what they came to represent. The word Pharisee is derived from a term which means to separate. They were the separated ones. And the Pharisees as a group and a movement arose a couple hundred years before Jesus because they wanted to distinguish themselves from the unholiness which had become more and more prevalent around them. They were the ones who desired most revival and sought it tooth and nail in a renewed vigor for spiritual disciplines, holiness, reformation, because they rightly understood that Israel and the people of God, their messed up situation and their horrible condition had been a result of loving sin and wandering away from Yahweh. And so they sought to return to the word of God. 
They wanted to keep the law. They believed in the Bible, the authority of it, the fact that it is God's very own breath. And unlike even some so-called Christians today, they did believe in heaven and hell, the need for righteousness, a future resurrection, an actual Satan, and so many of the truths that we hold on to now as well. And so they began with the best of intentions. This was their response to a world around them that had gone horribly astray that we need to emphasize our people's holiness. Does any of this kind of heart sound familiar to you? I hope it does. There's been this initial purity of passion and zeal, but their problem came not from these noble beginnings and spiritual wisdom of sinfulness really being the root and core of all of God's people's maladies. Their issue came as they began more and more to focus upon the letter of the law rather than the heart of it. All the ceremonial washings and cleansings and what you wear and what and how you eat, sin began to become more and more defined by these external things to the detriment of the entire purpose of the law. The ceremonial cleansings were always to represent what needed to happen within. I mean, what did Jesus point to back in Luke 10, 26? What is written in the law? How do you read it? The answer there, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the inside of the cup. That's the inside of the human heart. Do you understand how internalized this is? You know, so many of you parents, you love your children. I see you love your children perhaps more than your own life. And so you care for them, you feed them, you try to be patient with them, you spend all your money on them. But all of that externally is because something is already true internally. But so often it is that people can miss the forest for the trees, and so it began over years and decades and centuries that the Pharisees started to add to the Word of God in their minds to protect the Word of God. They had to be clean, religiously speaking. So let's add even some more washings and more cleansings and more rules and more laws over and top of what the Scriptures say. The Mishnah, which is an ancient Jewish tradition, I read this in Philip Ryken's commentary. He quotes R. Kent Hughes. It says this, The Mishnah gives a good idea of what people like the Pharisees meant when they say, go wash your hands before dinner. The hands are susceptible to uncleanliness, and they are rendered clean up to the wrist. Thus, if a man had poured first water up to the wrist and the second water beyond the wrist and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand becomes clean. But if he poured both the first water and the second water beyond the wrist, and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand remains unclean. If he poured the first water over the one hand alone, and then bethought himself and poured the second water over the one hand, his one hand is clean. If he had poured the water over the one hand and then rubbed it on the other, it's now unclean. But if he rubbed it on his head or on the wall, it remains clean. I don't know what that even means. <laughs> it sounds super intricate. But none of that is in the Old Testament at all. But this desire for religious outward purity over the years and throughout the centuries, layer upon layer, became this animal of its own. And brothers and sisters, it is always easier to deal, deal with the filth on your hands than to deal with the filth in your hearts, always. When the Pharisees came up with more and more rules to stay religiously busy and to stay morally clean and to wash like crazy and keep away from the riffraff, 
All of that is just distracting from the sin that is within. It's a lot easier to be concerned with the outside and feel some sense of satisfaction of cleaning only what is there. Hardened spaghetti is a lot more difficult to deal with than fingerprints on the bottom of the plate. Hardened sin is a lot more difficult to deal with, to look at what's happening on the inside. Harboring bitterness, years of anger, lust, greed, pride. It's all so much more difficult to come to terms with and to face head on. And the path of least resistance, therefore, is just to do what's easier in religion. And we can often do the very same thing. Come to church, check. Sing our songs, yep. Try and stay awake in the sermon. Serve at Awana, check, check, check. Chickity check. I must be right with God. And yet our hearts utterly crusted over with sin that has had this compounding effect over the years makes it where we no longer even see the beauty of Jesus, the Son of God, almost at all, as the object of our greatest satisfaction and deepest joy. Or if we have him, even if we've lost all else, we still have everything. And for our families to prioritize him over all else, it means everything. But sometimes it is that we don't even take the time to ask ourselves if he means anything to us because we just stay busy. And the external religious busyness can dominate the heart where we rely again on some kind of spiritual checklist which leads paradoxically more and more into the wickedness of self-righteousness and pride. I do all these things. How come no one else does? Must mean because that I'm better than them. And even though we know, may know, deep down there's still sin in the heart, we again just do the easier thing and ride with those who also ignore it as well and focus on our external duties alone, losing sight of the fact that the sum of the law and the prophets is again to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor even as you love yourself. We can come and easily checkmark religion without ever asking ourselves earnestly, do I love the Lord my God in my heart? Do I really? Do I really love people? Do I love them? Now, the only reason why this conflict exists with the Son of God in this home of the Pharisees is because they had already lost everything. I mean, the greatest fulfillment of the law and the prophets, which they seem so desperate to protect the word of God, what human has ever truly loved the Lord with all heart, soul, mind, and strength except Jesus? I mean, temptation after temptation, he never failed. Continued to, to prioritize the Lord, loved the Father instead. Uh, what, what person has ever embodied the law and showed forth this purity and beauty of life being lived in this submission to the Father beautifully in the glory of his life but Jesus? And who in the entirety of their time upon earth had genuinely loved his neighbor even as himself? I can't think of another person who touches a leper. Jesus grabs the man. And, and who is headed to the cross even now to demonstrate his love for us and that love for God at the same time? But Jesus. It's not like Jesus lived his life in secret or in a vacuum. Everyone knows how different he is. He had truly been this light put on a stand, Luke eleven thirty three, 33, for everyone to see. The beauty of the law, embodied, lived out, demonstrated, is sitting right across the table from the most religious people of the day, and they have an issue with him because he didn't wash his hands right. How in the world 
Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus didn't wash his hands before he eats. It's for some of the kids out here who just want to eat. There's boys right there in the corner. No, this means Jesus didn't wash in the way they wanted him to with a pouring of a cup symbolically to wash away sin on the outside as if sin could be dealt with on the outside. Don't take this passage to mean that Jesus is unhygienic. Now, why doesn't Jesus just wash his hands like they want him to? You could avoid this weird moment, just have a nice, pleasant dinner. Couldn't Jesus be more courteous, more selfless, meet them where they are at, be compassionate and kind, just look the other way and yada, yada, yada? I don't think that 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 would do them any good. That crust is thick, thick enough to need a, a chisel and a hammer, which is why Jesus raises his voice in verse 40, you fools. He doesn't often call people that. And then he points them to the giving of alms from within, then everything can be clean. Because true religion is from the inside outward. And God can see our insides just as much as he sees the outside of us. And this has always been the case. 1 Samuel 16, 7, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Brothers and sisters, where is your heart this morning? Have you come to a place where you're just going through the motions? Are you just washing the outside? I'm fine as long as it looks fine out here. Where's your heart this morning? A heart of worship expressed in outward living, not outward religiousness to cover up the sin within. God wants all of us inside and out, and then everything becomes clean. But Jesus is not done with making this situation awkward. He actually now begins to enter into a series of specific woes upon the Pharisees, his host, to expose that which is within them. Verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. This is a a harsh condemnation from the lips of Jesus upon the Pharisees as a whole. This is a threefold judgment. They have their priorities reversed. They are all about their egos, and they have this contaminating effect upon the people around them. And each woe really is is a declaration of both heartbreak and of condemnation. And in this sense, Jesus is really reiterating the prophets of old because they would declare the same thing on the nation of Israel, heartbreak and impending doom. Isaiah chapter 5 is a good example of that. And these three specific judgments really show to us three specific characteristics of what happens when religion goes bad and our personal spirituality is soured. The first woe to the Pharisees is about reverse priorities, tithing mint and rue and herbs and neglecting justice and the love of God. This is religion gone bad majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. So scrupulous about small things and ignoring the large ones. The Pharisees made sure to split their tithe in razor-sharp accuracy. Mint, rue, and herb, these are not big plants with big leaves. And the Pharisees would make sure they gave exactly that tenth. That's what a tithe is, a tenth. And they took effort, uh, great effort in offering exact amounts of even the smallest of their produce, not an ounce more or an ounce less, which took this painstaking effort and accuracy. They majored on this painstaking effort and accuracy. And yet justice, helping the widow, 
the orphan, those who had been wronged in an era of no social security and welfare and, and courts of law that helped women, the victims of that current society, caring for these kind of people who to no fault of their own suffer is one of the greatest evidences of love for God. Listen to James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. To be extremely concerned about cutting a leaf of mint to the exact tenth and unconcerned for those in need of justice is to have priorities upside down. To tie so precisely and not even love the Lord at all is to major on the minor and to minor on what is most major. To give a tenth, just give more than a tenth then. Cutting that leaf, just throw the whole leaf in. I need a magnifying glass to make it exact. To be extreme about small things, preferences, and utterly ambivalent to the big things is characteristic of heartless religion. Now, at some point, uh, now some at this point, uh, people may want to respond, cool, no more tithes and offering. Uh, but Jesus says these things you should have done without neglecting the others. Notice he doesn't say forget about tithing and just go fight for justice. So some people want to say, he says do both. But don't care about justice uh, only as much as you care about herbs. He's throwing a glass of water into their faces. Now, <clears throat> this honestly is a hard illustration for us today. I think the national average church member gives only something like 2% or so to the church. And, and no one gets to witness it. It's not a public sphere. We don't do this publicly at our church. And so the external benefit of giving is not the same as it was in the first century because for us, for the most part, we don't know who gives what. I don't know what any of you guys give. And I hope that's not why the average giving is 2% uh, compared to what they did in the first century. And if this is you hovering around 2% or less, I think you should rethink your personal budget. I mean, we're under a greater covenant than what these Pharisees had. And they somehow gave more in their hollow religion than genuine Christians on this side of the cross and the resurrection. And that doesn't make any kind of sense at all. But Jesus says, do both. And I think that's key because there's another kind of sin today that only wants justice and doesn't give to fuel worship. But in this context, again, the minor worship of giving the precise tithe of herbs seemed to matter more than the major worship of helping those who needed the help most. And more than even their love of God which is tangibly expressed in that help. When we become obsessed with minor things and oblivious to major ones, we are in great and dire danger in our faith. You know, my youngest son, 27, is beginning to play basketball, and the coach is good. He's the youngest on his team. He's the smallest guy on the court. And the coach tells him, Trent, you got to run to this spot on defense, run over here for offense. And during the game, Trent runs with all his might to get to that one point on defense, and then he looks down at his feet, and then he sticks his hands out, and he defends the ball. And the ball might come right around the side of his head. He's not doing anything. He has no idea where the ball is. He just makes sure to get to that spot and sticks his hands up. And that's fine for his age. He's having a blast. But that's not how you play basketball. And there are uh, uh, many faithful givers in the church. Praise the Lord. And especially over the decades, selfless, faithful, regular, joyful. And at cost to themselves, they do love the church so much. God knows this very well, that they give and give and give. But then we can rest there as if we're done. And then become oblivious to human justice needs around us. We can literally become blind to them. Well, I don't even see them then. And then we feel like we fulfilled our love for God and love for neighbor because we wrote a check. That's not Christianity. 
Brothers and sisters, we have to stand guard for the Pharisee who cares more about cutting a dill seed into tents and remains uncaring for widows and orphans. These things don't happen overnight. Reverse priorities can happen little by little by little by little. And therefore, the Son of God himself proclaims woes upon these very ones who have missed the entire main point. We must make special effort to nurture our love for God, which will spill over into our desire and passion for justice. The second woe is vanity. This relates to the ego, uh, self-centered attention, love of status, recognition, applause. Our religion has gone really wrong when we become more captivated by our glory more than God's glory. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seed in the synagogues and greens in the marketplaces. If the Pharisees are not really loving God as proclaimed in the first woe, then who is it that they're loving but themselves? And there's a kind of religion that is for show that does the things it does for the admiration and the adoration of the people around them. And in this culture, the more religious you seemed, the better the seed you got. Greetings in the marketplaces are those drawn-out conversations that you go from person to person and they recognize you for your status. You really prayed for like 15 minutes up there the other day. Now, humanity as a race, uh, it's a very competitive culture. We're always comparing ourselves to each other and jockeying for position. And, and it's even a million times worse now with social media. But there is within each of our hearts uh, this craving for attention and recognition that will be known as or admired as something else. We want that reputation. Now, today, a godly reputation might not take you all that far in the current world. But that same competitiveness, that same vanity and ego is still there nonetheless. Who has the nicest car, the best house? Well, whose children's got the best grades? Who's scored the most points? That's my kid right there. And even those who do not want recognition can still be competitive enough quietly. Oh, I'm so glad I'm not as vain as those people over there. I hope those people know how unlike I am that they are. And we can feel this sense of self-importance uh, because of some promotion, some distinguishment, some accomplishment, some progress, and we glory when we are the envy of another person. That's just how the world works. Within the Christian sphere, we can see it expressed in these weird ways. You meet someone for the first time, and they announce to you their entire spiritual resume and boast about their spiritual disciplines and make sure that everyone knows when they serve the church and for how long. I just met you. Or on the other end, oh, I'm not like those uptight Christians. I'm like this instead. I'm more kind and liberal and blah, 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 blah. Brothers and sisters, this is all disgusting. We cannot live for the glory of Christ and the glory of self at the same time. Make no mistake about it. We will be full of him, or we're going to be full of ourselves. There really is no middle ground. We cannot be obsessed with a reflection in the mirror and then slap our chest and then point to the one above. Whose prestige are we really most concerned about? His or ours? I think one way to know this quickly is how bold you are for Jesus in the church and see if you're less bold for Jesus in the world. If that's the case, then you know something's really fake. If in the world you act like the world for show, and in the church you act like the church for show, then religion has gone real wrong for you, and your spirituality has soured. One commentator says this about the Pharisees. They want applause and popularity, not God. They want to be worshipped, not offer worship. 
They think little of God, but much of themselves. It's possible to use religion for popularity and privilege. That is the Pharisees. And so the second woe is really about vanity, ego, love of status, and especially here, religious people who use even their religion for one-upsmanship. God desires a humility that is him-centered over me-centered. The third woe is this uh, contaminating effect that the Pharisees have upon the people around them. Religion gone wrong spreads with this contagion. Jesus says, woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Under the old covenant, coming into close proximity with a corpse or a grave site would make you ceremonially unclean for a certain amount of days, which is why they marked graves. Because if you're about to go worship, you can't go to the graveside. You won't be able to worship then. Jesus here, in a jugular shot to the Pharisees, calls them unmarked graves, which means that these religious leaders actually make everyone else around them unclean without them even knowing it. Because they don't say they're unclean. Their hollow religion, their self-centeredness, their majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors, it actually spreads to the people around them. And it spreads to the people who follow them, and they don't even know it's happening. Brothers and sisters, when we have lost our heart for God, and when we just use religious makeup, that hollowness of false faith, that vanity of self-centered religion, it actually spreads with contagion. This Phariseeism spreads to those to the left and to the right of us. Hollow and superficial faith spreads to our children, and we might not even know it, and they might not even know it either. Egocentric vanity spreads, checkmark religion spreads, and it contaminates. Now, at this point in the text, with the woes laid out before us, uh, I think it's meant for a time of self-reflection. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He says, let me counsel every true servant of Christ to examine his own heart frequently and carefully before God. This is a practice which is useful at all times. It is especially desirable at this present day. When the great plague of London was at its height, people took note of the smallest symptoms that appear on their bodies in a way that they never noticed them before. A spot here, a spot there, which in time of health, men thought nothing of now received close attention when the plague was decimating families and striking down one after another. We ought to watch our hearts with double watchfulness. We ought to give more time to meditation, self-examination, and reflection. It is a hurrying and bustling age. If we would keep from falling, we must take time for being frequently alone with God. And we never lived during the plague, but it's just a couple of years ago that COVID was new. We didn't know the nature of the illness. They said that it would kill you just like that. And so I don't know if you remember, slightest headache. Oh my gosh, do I have COVID? Running nose, should I get tested? Putting on rubber gloves, going to Costco, things like that to make sure this doesn't spread or kill. These woes are functioning like a test. Do you have it? Do you have religion gone bad? Do you have hypocrisy? Are my priorities upside down? Am I majoring on minors and minoring on majors? in my vein, and so worried about my reputation, where I stand competitively with the people around me. Do I love greetings? Do I love being recognized? Do I love getting a lot of likes on my social media? Am I an unmarked and hypocritical grave that is actually going to spread hollow religion to the people around me? That's way worse than COVID. That's way worse than the bubonic plague. Our souls last forever. Our bodies will be resurrected into something else. 
These woes function like a test so that we will not spiritually die, brothers and sisters. That what may have begun with the best of beginnings will not turn sour in the end. That hypocrisy and self-righteousness and self-centeredness will be fought rather than accepted as a norm. That repentance and confession and restoration and reconciliation might be our mainstays. If you're a believer this morning, use tests like this passage to check yourself for symptoms and perhaps awaken you from something which could turn eternally deadly. Like in Duncan, in his treatment of this text, he says, what do you think Jesus might say if he came to dinner at your house today? You can see the inside and the outside. What do you think Jesus would say to each one of us? Now, if you're not a believer this morning and you're wondering why you came here on a Sunday to hear about woe is upon a group of religious people from 2,000 years ago, if there's anything you get from this morning is, is this. The human heart is, is desperately untrustworthy. That's wicked. I mean, people can take the best of things like religion and turn them into altars of self-idolatry, tricking us into thinking we're something we're not. That's the human condition. That's what the Bible says about us. We're so contaminated with this bend towards sin. The inside of each of us is crusty, evil, unless God does something, which is why we can never earn salvation. Christianity is not, well, I'm going to do this and read my Bible and go to church and, and wash the outside. Obviously, this text shows that's not. We cannot earn salvation. Who could ever love someone like this? And that's the gospel. That's the good news. That God loves people like this. And he sends Jesus Christ to people like this. We need a perfect Savior. And that's why we love our perfect Savior. Would you please join me in prayer? Oh, Father, we ask by your grace and mercy that you would not let us be self-deceived that you would use your word under the power of your spirit to bring conviction into our hearts to anything we might have become blind to. Save us and keep us to the very end, God. I pray that you would help us to love you with everything we, we have. I pray that you show forth uh, Jesus in all of his beauty through your word and by the spirit that we might see his, his glory so that everything else would grow strangely dim. Help us to be captivated by what is most important and we thank you so much for your love, your grace, your kindness, your patience. Would you continue to do so and make us more like your son? All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.